you know, my dad was a great speaker. So when I came back from the Olympics at 13, the town went crazy and they had dinners for me and all that. And he said, you know, we're going to write some speeches, but at 13, they're going to love anything you say. So just get up there. Don't be afraid and go for it. Presenting yourself was a tool that my dad really helped nurture. Uh, he had come back from the war as a Red Cross volunteer. The war really changed him. His father left him when he was a kid. Sports saved his life. And he ran for office. He ran for Congress in uh, San Diego County. Uh, I mean, all this came into play at a very young age. And I think it just kind of was went hand in glove with how I progressed uh, as I moved through sports and into broadcasting and then later on into, you know, work on the Hill in Washington, D.C. Introducing Donna De Verona, Olympic gold medal winning swimmer, pioneering sports broadcaster, and history-making activist for women and girls in sports. I'm John Moffat, and welcome to Sports Life Balance. For me, coming of age in the early to mid-80s, Donna was swimming royalty. And while commentating for television at meets, she was as generous and kind as she was awe-inspiring. But before we dive in, you have to understand how Donna rose to this status. At just 13 years old, she made the 1960 U.S. Olympic team. Then in 1964, after winning two gold medals in Tokyo, she quit. Why? Well, because back then, and this is hard to imagine, women's collegiate athletic teams just didn't exist. So at 17 years old, Donna became the youngest and the first female sports broadcaster on network television. She was named as a consultant to the U.S. Senate to legislate change, all the while helping tennis legend Billie Jean King establish the Women's Sports Foundation. And seriously, that's barely scratching the surface of a lifetime of accomplishments and milestones. Today, Donna's trailblazing career continues. Her next chapter, as a newly elected member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's Board of Directors. So to celebrate International Women's Day coming up this Monday, March 8th, please enjoy Donna De Verona. Donna, thank you so much for sitting down with me today on Sports Life Balance. Well, another swimmer. How could I refuse? We're, we're a real family. Well, that's, that's for sure. And, you know, we're a family going way back uh, till the, back to the 80s when um, you used to interview me. So this is a little bit of... Uh, it's intimidating to have the roles reversed and after being interviewed by you so many times, having the opportunity to interview you. Well, it was always fun interviewing you. The, you know, it was really a privilege to be in the broadcast booth for all those years, uh, from the 60s all the way up to 2000, after the 2000s. And, uh, but I, I, and I did do a lot of sports, but I always loved the smell of chlorine and the pool deck. <laughs> it's to this day, it's still like home when I smell that smell. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to share with the listeners a little story that uh, one time when you interviewed me, it was at the 1985 NC2A championships. And I believe that you were, uh, you were, uh, you were, you were calling for wide world of sports. And that was, um, that was back in the day of wide world of sports. We'll talk about that in a little, uh, in a little bit. But I had a rivalry with my mother, especially on uh, televised meets where I would mess up my hair and look at her up in the stands. And she would, of course, 
look at me disapproving. And she always told me, you have to comb your hair. You have to comb your hair if you're going to be on TV. So this one time I was being interviewed by you and I was actually, I could see my mother up in the stands and you paused the cameras and you stopped and you said, does anybody have a comb? I guess I always had a mother in me. I always felt actually what was fun about uh, covering swimming was I always felt like I was a little bit of a coach and a little bit of a mentor to the people that I got close to during their careers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you I think you definitely were. Um, to this day, I spoke to my mom yesterday and said I was going to interview you. And she's like, oh, do you remember that story of the comb? But I just remember looking at her up in the stands and she was so happy that you decided to take me under your wing. And, and that's one of the things that I remember about you. Not only was it that you were very protective of us, but you were trusted because you were the epitome, epitome of the real deal. Um, and you knew what it was like to be a competitor. And, and we all trusted you because you come from that place. That was very helpful to my career. And I must tell you, I had a lot of battles with directors and some producers at ABC about, you know, can't you get them right before the race and do an interview? And uh, I'd say, listen, this is their time where they have to really focus and we can't get too close with the camera. I even went to uh, FINA at a meeting, the first help set up the first athletes commission to FINA. Uh, and, and I said, we've got to have some rules. We've got to give these people distance. If they, if they feel okay about talking to us right before, fine. But I know when I was competing, I had to get my focus. I didn't, I didn't want people talking to me before uh, my race. I just wanted to think it through, visualize it. And uh, so, you know, it was a process. But I did fight for you guys a lot because I, I, I had been there and I, and I did love the trust. Well, you, you've made a career out of fighting for athletes, and uh, we are definitely going to be talking about that in a little bit. But right now, I want to go back in time a little bit and uh, to Rome in 1960. Donna, you were 13 years old when you went to those <laughs> Olympic <laughs> Games. Like, how in the world? What led up to that, and how did you pull that off? You know, I look back at 13 year olds and I think, my gosh, you know, when you become a mother, you realize as a parent, I'm going to let my daughter go off to Rome. They couldn't afford to go to the Olympic trials of the nationals on the way. And they just let me go. It was a more trusting time. The good thing is George Haynes was such an amazing coach. He, he was the one coach that could coach men and women to excellence and we work out together and um, but it, surprisingly, before Rome, my previous coach wouldn't coach me anymore because I beat his daughter right before the Olympic trials. That's crazy. And so, no, I, it was crazy, but, you know, he was basically banned from the sport because he would call my room before my races and threaten me and tell me that I took pep pills and it, he dropped me from the team right before nationals and I had to take a Greyhound bus by myself from San Francisco to Reading to swim in a nationals. But um, you know, that made me tougher, but it was magical to go to Rome. I held the world record in the 400 individual medley, uh, but it was only a race for men and not for women. So That's maybe crazy. I, <laughs> maybe, maybe I would have gotten a, a gold medal at 13. Um, but I did go as an alternate and swam on the trials of the relay. Um, you know, we qualified the team, which was a real gift. And uh, our four great swimmers who never have been 
given enough credit, Chris von Salsa, uh, Carolyn Schuler, Lynn Burke, um, they were amazing. They won, I, I can't remember off the, you know, six gold medals between them. Um, Carolyn Wood, uh, we just had a great team, small team, but Rome was magical because everybody adopted me. They couldn't believe that I was a competitor. So I, I came home with more pins than anybody because at that time, pin trading was very authentic. No sponsors on the pins. It was all just country pins. And so I spent a good amount of time uh, collecting on the way. But those were the Olympics of Wilma Rudolph and Ralph Fossen and John Thomas and um, one of the greatest basketball teams ever. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, that's what changed my my whole trajectory of my life. I just never wanted to leave sports. I did a few times and I was never happy. And uh, time, place and circumstance really put me in, in a position, not only as a competitive swimmer with a great coach and a great team after I left the first one, uh, but it put me on this path that, you know, I discovered as a broadcaster and then as an activist in Washington, D.C. for Olympic change and for the, the rights of athletes, as well as for more women's participation. So, um, so you, you you think that there's a there's a connection between all the swimmers and the coaches who uh, protected you when you were 13 years old, and, and that really stuck with you. You think that that's carried through with you with your entire life, and you ultimately becoming uh, an activist and looking out for the welfare of your fellow athletes. I think having a coach like George Haynes and being on a team of world record holders, you know, you, you aspire to the best around you. And it was a privilege to have a co-ed team like that that did so well and to have the trust of a coach like that. I mean, I, he taught me life schools skills in that he would say to me, what, co what races do you want to compete in? Because I was a medalist and if we wanted to get a team, trophy, I could say to him, you know, at this meet, I'd rather swim in the 200 butterfly instead of this other race. And maybe we can get more points that way. But I was more of a partner and a collaborator than I was just an athlete. Uh, we really benefited that. I think the tragedy is the loss of trust that we've seen recently with coaches, uh, really bad actors that have been, um, I mean, the ones that are, the ones that are managers that lose the trust by harassing. Um, but on the whole, I think the swimming coaches in my era, the one thing they did was create the coaches association and every year they'd come together and they'd share techniques. They wouldn't hoard them like they did in gymnastics. My sister was a gymnastics. And if the gymnastics coaches got direction from the international federation on the new standards, they would hold on to those things and not let the kids in California have them or the coaches. So they'd have an advantage. I think we dominated, we have dominated and continue to dominate because the coaches have that tradition. And some of the bad guys uh, have really undermined um, a lot of trust and we have to take care of that. We, we, we definitely do. We'll talk more, a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, but um, just a side note, uh, George Haynes was my wife's coach for her first uh, three years of college. Just, uh, just a little side note of interest. That's fantastic. Um, isn't that, isn't that crazy? So, um, but needless to say, you also captured the spotlight a little bit there. You, you captured people's attention. Um, and you always have, uh, through your charisma, 
through so many different aspects of talents that you have. Um, you told me a story about a leopard swimsuit. The leopard suit was the brainchild of a very smart marketing guy before we really understood the term. His name was um, Bill Lee. And Bill Lee's daughter and I were friends. We were age group swimmers together. And I used to go stay with the Lees to train with George. When I, when I was a freshman in high school, I didn't want to leave my community. And this was after my coach had left me and George had adopted me. But the training with George was summer and weekends. And so, but anyway, so I'd go stay with the Lee family and Bill Lee uh, had a friend who was a pilot that would go to Australia and he was do anything for his daughter in age group. So he started getting these Speedo suits back on the airplane and he became like the bag man for, for Speedo. <laughs> and when I started to win, he thought, oh, I can really promote this sport. He would give me a suit color before anybody else. Of course, that endangered interest, but maybe some resentment because I always had the best suit. And so <laughs> right before the, uh, the nationals uh, in 1964, he said, I've got a suit for you. It's leopard skin. And he said, I want you to wear it. And, and by the way, all during this time, I would help him uh, tailor the suit because I was medley swimmer. I, you know, this hurts because this is nylon suits. It, they weren't right. flexible. It needs to be longer here. It needs this, that. Anyway, so I being superstitious, I was very worried about changing my winning suit. So I, because I had my favorite suit. So what I would do was I would um, practice in our friend's backyard, which was like a 10 yard pool with this suit. So the finals come along and ABC's Wide World of Sports is there. And it's the finals of the, I think the 200 individual medley. And right before the race, I'm thinking, if I don't win this race in this leopard skin suit, I am really going to look like a turkey, but <laughs> I got up on the blocks. I had a towel around me. I dropped my towel and I've got this leopard skin suit on and all the guys do the Tarzan yell. <laughs> and I won that race by about two tenths of a second. Thank goodness. <laughs> but then everybody wanted the leopard skin suit, but it was, it was, it was interesting because it was such a big deal then for me to have a leopard skin suit speedo that was nylon and really not that, you know, it's not like you're on the cover of sports illustrated in a bikini. <laughs> right. But right. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I brought I, a, it was fun to do that. I think it's interesting that, uh, that story, uh, you, you were, you were always marketing minded, whether it be intentionally or subconsciously, or you, you were always very, very good at the marketing side, something which I was never good at, but certain people of my era were very good at. <laughs> One of my chief competitors was very good at. Um, so uh, is it, was, it, was it ever something that you thought consciously about, or was it something that just came naturally to you that you just were natural in front of the camera? I think, you know, my dad was a great speaker. So when I came back from Olympics at 13, the town went crazy and they had dinners for me and all that. And he said, you know, we're going to write some speeches, but at 13, they're going to love anything you say. So just get up there. Don't be afraid and go for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually also came back from the Olympics and ran for president of a student body. And I won because I, really, you know, it kind of helped to come back from the Olympics as a 13 year old and then run for your middle school president and you're going to get it. Right. <laughs> so I think it was kind of instinctual, but it was reinforced along the way. And um, presenting yourself was very, uh, was a tool that my dad really helped nurture. 
Uh, he had come back from the war as a Red Cross volunteer uh, during World War II. He was the only field director to jump in combat 11 times. Mm -hmm. um, came back, the war really changed him. His father left him when he was a kid. Sports saved his life. And he ran for office. He ran for Congress in, in Los and in, uh, San Diego County. So he, and he was a great writer. He would do the newsletter for the Red Cross. So I mean, all this came into play at a very young age. And I think it just kind of was, went hand in glove with how I progressed uh, as I moved through sports and into broadcasting and then later on into, you know, work on the Hill in Washington, DC. Yeah, yeah, wow, fascinating. I didn't, I had no idea about that. Um, well, let's fast forward then to 1964. Um, you uh, you made quite a splash there to use a really bad metaphor, <laughs> um, but uh, but you won two gold medals in '64. Yes, I won two gold. I was in three events. Um, I swam. I I tried out for every race, but the breaststroke races to go to Tokyo. Uh, very ambitious. Just missed. Uh, a, a few events by finishing fourth. Th those days you could take three in each event. Uh, I went to the Olympics uh, right before that as a world record holder in the 100 backstroke, 100 meter backstroke, which somehow has been lost in history. But mm. um, I made it in the 100 butterfly, uh, the 400 individual medley. Those were the two events I qualified for. Uh, but what happened when we got to uh, Tokyo to keep everybody fresh, Peter Daland, who was our Olympic coach, said, okay, anybody can challenge to get on the relay because mm. we had like three weeks or so before the Olympics and he didn't want people to take things for granted and, and not be sharp. So I challenged for the relay and that's how I got my second, uh, how I got, really won the second medal because I medaled, I didn't medal in the 100 fly. I, I don't know when the last time that the Olympic trials and swimming were held by anything other than a completely objective, you know, you get first, second, third, or you get first, second, and that's it. Is that the, you, to your knowledge, is that the last time that there was no, that I, discretion I, left for the relays like that? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that that didn't operate going forward. I know it was very controversial because mm -hmm. um, the, the, the three that qualified all three didn't make the relay. Pokey, Pokey Richardson, uh, Watson, Pokey mm -hmm. Watson Richardson, and I both challenged, and mm -hmm. we, I think, we pushed out one of the freestylers. Fortunately, I, for me, for my own, you know, satisfaction or confidence, I had the second fastest time on the relay. Sharon Stouter was the fastest. Mm. So when it was all over, nobody could dispute that I didn't belong on the relay. Right, but, right. But it was such a long training camp. And there were some athletes that just really, when they got, when they made the team, they just kind of, I think they were overwhelmed by the Santa Clara swimmers and the LA swimmers because we were workhorses. We were breaking world records in practice and Dale had loved it. So some of, some of the athletes that made the team that were in smaller teams just didn't survive training camp. Yeah, right. Wow. Well, um, I, I, I saw, I, I read a statistic on you that you broke 18 world records. I mean, 18? Well, here's the deal. I say it's 18, including relays. Okay. And I say world fastest times when I, when it's in my bio that I write, because the 200 individual medley, which I never lost, I think I broke seven times. Wow. But it wasn't 
it's somewhere in between those years, they made it from a world best to a world record. So mm. if you look at, if you look up at this stuff, it'll say world record, but okay. I always want to be accurate because I don't want to ever be accused of making things up. Um, somehow my hundred meter backstroke, which I found uh, in um, a certificate and in my scrapbook, my hundred meter backstroke world record doesn't appear when they, when you go searching for it. Um, so I've been trying to get, you know, Bruce Wigo to, 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 um, confirm it, but international it's a, swimming hall of fame, Bruce Wigo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes. And actually the person that did all the research was Buck Dawson, who, uh, I didn't even know for years how many records I'd broken American or world. And then, uh, uh Buck Dawson who loved me, made me the mm -hmm. queen of this swimming hall of fame. <laughs> um, it, you know, wrote up a bio on me and he, he, he put that number in. Wow. Well, um, so here's, here's where your story gets kind of crazy to me. And that is when you returned from 1964 on the summer of 1964 or, or early fall of 1964, you were going to UCLA, correct? Am I getting the timing correct? Uh, I had, I was coming back to finish my senior year in high school. Got it. But you didn't swim at UCLA. You didn't swim in college. Well, there were no swimming. There, in my day, there were no high school swimming teams or college swimming teams. In fact, I had was thinking of Stanford or USC. I didn't get in Stanford. USC, we could, I couldn't afford. Uh, and believe it or not, I had been flown back as a 17-year-old to cover the men's swimming championships at Yale University. Wow. Why will the sports live television? I had picked up the phone and called um, Chuck Howard, who was a swimming producer and said, I can't bear to quit the sport, but there's no future for me. If I could be around it, you know, if I could just help Jim McKay or whatever, I could, I could make that decision. And by the way, I was getting offers to turn professional, mm -hmm. you know, speedo, you know, there was money coming in and I would right. have been able to afford to put myself through school. Um, so I flew back and covered, uh, I covered that race, but, uh, and on the flight, I met up with, um, oh no, in the pool deck, I met up with Bob Horn, who was a water polo coach at UCLA, very accomplished. And I had met him on the, on the airplane on the way to Rome as a 13 year old. He said, what are you thinking about college? And I said, well, I'm thinking that I want to go to USC, not really understanding how USC and UCLA, you know, have this right, right, right. you're not going to USC, <laughs> you come out, I'm going to fix it up so you come out and come to the campus. And so, because I'd met all these great USC swimmers um, when I was on the Olympic team, really right. great athletes. So um, I came out, he put me up at a sorority and he had a spot, a recruiting spot that he decided he was gonna use for me. In the athletic department, they had you know a number. And he said, you gotta come to UCLA. and. I saw the campus and I went and I could afford it. And right. I said, this is it. And, but I had to get straight A's my senior year. I had to really focus. And um, I went to UCLA, but there was no, the, women didn't swim in college then. They didn't have programs. Uh, that's why, how, why I got so involved in title nine yeah. you know, later yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, from this place in 2021 and I know the history because I saw a lot of the history of, of Title IX and, and, and all of that. But it seems so strange and such an injustice that you, 
as one of the greatest swimmers in history in 1964. Um, and, and when you entered college, you had to pay for it yourself. And, and there, were, there, were, there was no support. Like, that's just crazy. Did it strike you as crazy back then? Did you, did you understand the injustice at that point? I think you just deal with the world you're in. I mean, I think the injustices I was focused on at the time, because I was close to Wilma Rudolph mm -hmm. and, you know, all my African-American teammates was the civil rights injustices. Uh, it didn't, you know, I also, for, I was one in a million that was, had some options. You know, you, I didn't want to turn professional. I turned down sponsors that I, I don't use your product. I can't say I won medals because of your product, but I was excited about, it was hard to quit swimming, but the fact that I could be in the booth with Jim and cover swimming and be around the sport I loved, I wanted to have an education. I had been under a lot of pressure. I was on the cover of every major magazine going into Tokyo and I, and I needed a break. And um, so this gave me the opportunity to make the transition, but it was crazy. And, you know, this was a time leading up to the, the apex of the um, civil rights movement, the uh, Vietnam War, um, and I was mired in all that. So, it, yes, along the way, it's like, oh, yeah, where are women in all this? Yeah. And uh, so when the opportunity came later on um, to become active, uh, I, I jumped in. And I said, it's not right. And there was, you know, there were quotas in medical school and law school. I wanted to go to law school. Uh, but then I got, I wrote a letter to the State Department. Um, and I had read The Ugly American and Who Rules America on my way to the Olympics. And The Ugly American was about foreign policy. Who Rules America was about the Eastern establishment and how they had a lock on privilege in Wall Street. And then I'm, you know, I'm, uh, and then I'm in this world of uh, Olympics with all these countries, and I'm seeing my great uh, teammates being discriminated against. I was prime to take advantage mm -hmm. of any opportunity that came my way. Mm -hmm. So when I came back from the Olympics, I wrote a letter to the State Department saying, "We need a, we need a, um, a Peace Corps of sport in America. Mm -hmm. We need to go into the inner cities and work with kids through sport because that's the international language of sport." And my letter found its way to the vice president's desk, Humphrey. And I got a call um, by the President's Council on Physical Fitness to join that, but to work in a special uh, program called Operation Champ, where we went in with Olympians and into communities. And in those communities like Detroit, the Detroit Pistons would come and work with us and we'd work in inner cities with the kids mm -hmm. and give them motivational speeches. And to this day, you know, it became a political football. They dropped the program, but it was great. And we should have it again in a much more sophisticated way. We can do it. Uh, give me, give me the, uh, about the years that this was going on. Well, 66, 65, let's see, 66 was when I, 65 was when I did my first commentary at 17 for ABC. Mm -hmm. uh, 66 was when I wound up working in inner cities for the vice president in the summers. Okay. Um, program uh, started in 66, uh, 67, Congress didn't fund it, 68, they refunded it. Mm -hmm. And I went back into the cities before I went to Mexico to cover the Olympics. Uh, I testified in Washington in 66 and 68. Okay. So I got a little taste of, you know, you can speak to leadership uh, it, with the urging of the vice president. Uh, I met him. 
personally. Uh-huh. Uh, and I just figured I could use my sports platform because I was still visible yeah. to, to approach people. And most people want to, they want to meet a gold medalist. You can get in the door. You just have to have something to say when you get in. Right. But those are the years. Right. And in 1968, you were president at those games, <clears throat> present at those games. And um, perhaps the most iconic um, human rights uh, uh, yes. demonstration in the history of, of the games happened there with uh, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I was very close to the track team. I was dating one of the, the ja- one of, a javelin thrower at the time. <laughs> and uh, I, I was staying at ABC and uh, Sharon Finneran was my buddy. And she tried, you know, she was, she had taken my world record away in the 400 individual medley. And then just barely made the team in 64 mm-hmm. and then wound up second at the Olympics to me. And she didn't make the team. So I had her come down and stay with me during the 68 games. But uh, that's a point of saying, you know, swimmers are family. But yeah. uh, I remember I had worked in the inner cities. So when Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fist, I said, wow, you know, I get it. And um ABC's Rune Arledge got it. The Olympic Committee kicked the athletes out of the Olympic Village. These guys paid a big price for it. We put them up for a while. I think they came over to our hotel. Uh, and not until last, was it last year or the year before last, did the U.S. Olympic Committee put them in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, 2019. And now, now we've gone Ron Robin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's go back to that era. So when did your really active work start with the Senate. It was the, it was the Senate you're primary, primarily working on, or was it just Congress in, in general? Well, I mean, I recall that it was a Senate hearing when mm-hmm. I was 18. Okay. But my, my big work uh, started after the 72 Olympics, Title IX had been passed, uh-huh. the Equal Education Amendments Act. And I had been covering the Olympic Games in, in Munich and the terrorist attack happened. The yeah. Black September came in and held all those Israeli athletes hostage. And I, I had been at the, I had covered swimming and Mark Spitz had just finished winning his seventh gold medal. And Mark and I were very close. I used right. to talk to him on the pool deck before every race. He'd always say, I can't win this one. And then he'd go and win the next <laughs> one, you know, Mark. Um, and so I was kind of had time off and my good buddy who I'd met in 64 was the assistant to the chairman of the organizing committee for the Olympics, as well as president of his NOC in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I had been out that night, gone home, wake up the next morning. And it's like, we're learning about this terrorist attack in the village and nobody knows what's really going on. And I am devastated. My friend's devastated. It was an interesting time because Howard Cosell was fighting to get the story and, uh, you know, it, it all became about competition. Who's going to tell the story? And Howard, being Jewish, wanted the story. And Rune was brilliant about people. He said, no, we're going to stick with Jim McKay because mm. he, he can have some distance from it, but put it in perspective, which is wow. what he always did. He was always in a history lesson with Jim McKay. He was so great. So I finally went over there late in the afternoon, reluctantly, and went to the the headquarters. And they said, Donna, you know, we need you because um, at that time, the women's village was separate from the men. Mm -hmm. Here's a walkie talkie. See if you can get in to the women's 
village because it the grassy area is located right behind a cinder block apartment building where they're holding the hostages. Right. Okay. So I took my walkie-talkie. I had my tracksuit on. I guess I still look like an athlete. I had my credential, and I was let in to the women's area. And I lay down in the grass for hours with a walkie-talkie, just looking at the cinder block building. And then I finally got a call that they're they're gone. You know, we they've worked a deal. They're going to the airport. And then we, then, then, and then years later, we learned out what, what really happened because yeah. the Mossad wanted to come in and help. And the Germans said, no, we'll take care of it. And they weren't trained to do what the Mossad could do. Or, and, and what's interesting is when we went to the Olympics, the, the Germans were really uptight and they were getting a lot of criticism for it. Mm-hmm. And so they backed off because this was supposed to be, you know, Germany's friendly and we're not the people you think we are. And, you know, we want to, we want people to come and see what we've done with our country. And then this happened. And uh, so then there was a big discussion on, do we stop the Olympics? And the the IOC said, no, we can't let terrorism win, but they took a day of mourning. And I knew a lot of the athletes because I was always that way. I wanted to know as many people as I could. So I sat next to Jim McKay during the memorial service and pointed out who was in the sitting, you know, during the, 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 you know, the day of mourning, who was, what athletes were present and all that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and then my good friend, I mean, he, after the games were over, he was so depressed. He, he, he almost took his life because it meant so much to him, you know, the games and the success. And it took years before the Germans could celebrate. And they finally did with the world cup a few years back hosting the men's world cup. But uh, that was when you went, wow, you know, you know, we dealt with the Vietnam War and all that, but, you know, here these, this evil invades this, this celebration of youth and hope. And yeah. it, was, uh, it was a reality check. Simul- simultaneously with this kind of uh, horrible tumult going on in the Olympic movement, um, you mentioned the Amateur Sports Sports Act, which I believe was passed somewhere around 1972, correct? 70, 78. Uh, Title IX was 72. Oh, uh, Title IX. Am- uh, the Amateur, Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act and Olympic Act was passed in 1978. Okay, great. So so t- Title IX technically, technically starting in 1972, it was law, but it wasn't really enforced. No, it wasn't. In fact, um, it, when it was passed, it was, um, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. That's an important word now because <laughs> everybody's yeah. playing around with gender and sex. And that's a whole other discussion Yeah, on the basis of sex in any institution that receives federal funding. Yeah. And at the time, uh, most athletic directors said, this is crazy. Women aren't interested in collegiate sports. They go to college to get married. We're, it's going to bankrupt athletic departments across the country. So the NCAA um, devoted a lot of money to trying to undermine the law. And they kind of operated uh, without guidelines. And then there was a case that went to the Supreme Court and the court went back to the Senate and said, you have to, you have to show how this ap- applies. You know, you say it, but, you know, you can't have equality overnight. You, you couldn't just all of a sudden have enough basketball players or track and field athletes that had been nurtured in the system to have full equality. So um, the, the Senate, 
the Congress went back and came up with the guidelines later on and how do you apply and still um, most schools aren't in compliance on um, Title IX as it relates to opportunities. I mean, men still get about a billion dollars more in scholarship money, recruiting money, facilities, if you look at the numbers. Right. But what's happened is if you look at how well we've done in the Olympics, it's certainly, we've certainly thrived with the yeah. opportunity. Right, right. So, so let, me, let, me, let me get this clear. So Title IX was enacted into law in 1972. And then the Sports Act, the Ted Stevens Sports Act, basically put teeth into it. And no, well, the Sports Act was separate. Uh -huh. Title IX applied to schools that receive okay. or institutions that receive federal funding. Right. Like if you, the debate was, it went to the Supreme Court because the argument was if the funding didn't go directly to sports in a school, then nobody had to comply by Title IX. The Supreme Court said, um, so the Supreme Court said, Congress, you got to be more definitive about this. So mm -hmm. later on, the courts went, uh, the uh, Supreme Court went back under the Civil Rights Restoration Act and said, any if an institution receives $1, all programs have to come under this law. Okay. All programs, whether it's law school, medical school, sports. Now, Title IX, uh, the Amateur Sports Act was focused on our Olympic structure. Okay. And what happened was after the 72 Olympics, you know, we remember the terrorism, but we forget about the fact that our uh, track athletes didn't get to the track on time. Uh, uh, Seagren, um, the great pole vaulter, had his pole taken away the last minute. There was nobody there during the um, Russia-U.S. game or Soviet game when the Soviets were given extra time and, and I took the gold medal away and nobody was there to fight uh, for our team because mm -hmm. it was really we see it as unfair. Um, but we really didn't have an organization that could deal with this, the um, progress of how we were fielding teams and everything in the Olympics. So I came back from the 72 Olympics and we put together a, a group of athletes and we said, uh, Congress has to look at the charter because Congress charters our Olympics. It gives right. us a you know, our tax status and we have to restructure because basically this Olympic committee is a travel agent every four years because yeah. the games were, you know, on the same schedule, winter, summer at the time. And so, and, we, and the, and our representatives were embarrassed about what happened in Munich as far as not taking care of our athletes. So um, I lobbied with other athletes to get Congress to focus on it. Um, Nixon was president. He'd signed title nine legislation, but then he got in trouble. So then when Ford took over, um, there was a guy at the White House named Mike Harrigan, which you should talk to sometime. And he was a track guy at Penn. And he, he said to the, the, the president at the time, Ford, we've got to put together a commission. And I was appointed the commission with our good friend, Rayford Johnson, mm -hmm. and Willie White, five-time Olympian, who we lost to pancreatic cancer. And we spent a year um, as a commission looking at all the sports and the structure. And we made a recommendation to Congress. It took from 72 to 78 to get the legislation passed. Wow. And um, we got the legislation passed, but we didn't get the funding. Um, Carter finally agreed to some funding, um, basically because the Olympic Committee acquiesced and didn't go to Moscow. That's really the truth. 
but uh, we got the funding and they opened up the training center and then things grew from there. And we, we've had some great moments in our Olympic structure, but you know, everybody has to retool. Corporations have to retool. So we've run into some problems and we're in the process of retooling again. Yes, and, and, and the one consistent thing that I hear from you is it's the athlete's voice. It's that voice of the athlete. The athletes who saved the movements. You know, athletes that speak up. I mean, Nancy Hogg said speaking up about harassment and really pushing to get safe sport. In my day, um, Rayford Johnson, Willie White, um, athletes, we started the Women's Sports Foundation. Athletes, uh, I helped get the first Athletes Commission set up for the International Olympic Committee with Seb Coe and, and uh, Thomas Bach through my German friend in 72 who'd helped organize the Munich Olympics because we have this international network where we've really fought because you got to hear from the athletes. They know what's going on. They're the engine that, you know, uh, propels this movement around the world and they need to be heard and be protected. And we've been, we have really helped save the movement over and over again. And we don't get paid for it. We do it because it's the right thing. It's definitely the right thing. And we're finding ourselves in another era of the Olympic movement, like you mentioned earlier, where there are abuses by coaches and things need to be readdressed. Uh, uh, tell me, tell me about what the athletes are doing right now to uh, help usher the Olympic and Paralympic movement into the, into a safer place for the athletes. Well, I think, I think that the games and sports has become such, such big business on one hand. And, uh, and then there's a whole other area where we're amateur and we do it for, uh, self-fulfillment and all the right reasons, but, you know, big success brings big problems. And, um, in the U S I think we've come a long way. Uh, I think people in the past got used to a certain structure and didn't pay attention to the responsibility of protecting the athlete, which we saw with the Nasser case and the gymnast. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, uh, I know I'm going to Nancy Hogshead, who you should talk to if you haven't, uh, was really instrumental in uh, pushing for safe sport to be set up. That's problematic. It needs to be funded more. There's hundreds of cases coming through there. And how does that relate to the responsibility of the Olympic Committee to protect athletes? We do have an athletes ombudsman that's been emboldened. We have new leadership within the USOPC. Um, the pressure of Congress uh, on the U.S. Olympic Committee to improve has been heard and felt. And over the last three years, there's been a lot of changes. Uh, currently, there is a commission, um, a legislation passed under the last um, administration to set up another commission like the one I was on to look at how we can even make it better. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's always this tension between national federations and the Olympic Committee, because the Olympic Committee can raise the money and they dole it out to the federations, but the federations have to get better at protecting mm -hmm. the athletes. Um, I helped set up the ombudsman role when I worked with Senator Stevens over the years within the USOC. So athletes had a place to go for complaints and they could do it anonymously. Every federation, every national uh, federation should have that. So I think those are the things that we're going to look at. Um, mm -hmm. And we have a lot of people stepping up to just give their time. I know I was really flattered that the alumni wanted me to run uh, for the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, Executive Board. Right. I've always felt I was better outside 
because I didn't owe anybody anything, but it was time for me to, to go inside. And so uh, I got, I have a four-year term and maybe we can make a big difference and, and work with the commission that's going to set up in the Senate. Cause you know, not all representatives and senators understand this complex world and, right. um, but we need them to, we need them to understand it. Right. Uh, and, and what you're speaking of is that uh, there was an election at the end of last year. Oh yes. Thank uh, you. Right. Okay. So, and, and that election uh, was on, uh, uh, was for a seat an at-large seat on the board of directors of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and you, you won that election and and got the four-year term. I did, and John Neighbor got the other term, and so we got two swimmers in there. And John has done, you know, he's devoted his, himself to the alumni. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're a good combination. I've been um, I've been an alumni, but I've been. I'm on a, I've been on a commission of the IOC forever, a women in sport commission. And I'm on their communications commission and I've had that experience in Washington. So, um, you know, I think we're going to, we're a good team together. Well, I think you are too. I, I know you both <laughs> and, and John neighbor has, has appeared on the, uh, on sports life balance as well. I'd like to go back in time just a little bit. And there's some of the, some of the things that you've, you've touched in, in your life that, uh, I want, I want to ask you about the Women in Sports Foundation, and it's it's a it's a foundation. You were the co-founder with Billie Jean King. Uh, tell me about how that all came together, and uh, and 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 why it originally came together, and why you it's still in a seat of power today. Well, legally, Billie Jean's the founder because she had the money and the legal protection. Um, so I'm not, a, she, she insists I'm not a co-founder, but I'm a founding member along with great people. And, and she was bigger than life. And when she beat, when she was going to challenge Bobby Riggs or he challenged her to the uh, battle of the sexes, I was working for ABC and Rune asked me, you know, what did I think? I said, it's going to be great. Uh, I didn't know her then. And so afterwards I had a friend, Susie Chaffee skier, mm -hmm. uh, um, very unique individual, incredibly creative. And we, we actually lobbied together all over the world and in Washington on the Amateur Sports Act. But aside from that, we also were lobbying for athletes' voices and for more women's sports. So when Billie Jean beat Bobby Riggs, uh, I said to Susie, I got to meet her, you know? And right. I had already been working with the Special Olympics since 1968 with Eunice Kennedy Shriver. And she was a great role model for me. And I said, when I met Billie Jean, I said, uh, we have to start a foundation for women. We don't have any women's representative <clears throat> within our Olympic committees. We need more events in the Olympic calendar. We need athletes' voices. And so she was really busy. So one day, so finally, after all these conversations, Larry King, who she was married to at the time, uh, said, come on out to California. Let's talk about this foundation. So I flew out to California because he said, we don't know what a foundation would do. Mm -hmm. And I said, here's a yellow legal pad. I'll tell you what it'll do. Uh, we're going to um, have a voice in Washington. We're going to fundraise. We're going to do research. We're going to have an 800 toll-free number, which now we have the internet. So mm -hmm. people that want to know about um, title nine, because it had passed, they want to know their rights. Uh, you know, they can call us for free. And so uh, he convinced Billie Jean, she was given a, a, a check to start, to do, donate to a charity. 
So she donated that to establish the foundation. Okay. Then we had this great executive director who'd lost her son and her husband in one year, Eva wow. Akaklas, and she loved tennis and Billie Jean. So she donated her time to be our CEO. So we kind of floundered around for a while. I was on the board. Um, Billie Jean uh, got so busy, she couldn't really pay attention. So she said, I'm leaving the foundation. Donna, would you be president? And I became the first president and I started the dinner in, in New York right. at the Plaza. Bruce Jenner, Caitlin came, uh, mm -hmm. Cheryl Tiggs came, uh, our athletes, uh, Peggy Fleming came. We sold out. I don't even know, you know, we were just going on faith. I mean, if we hadn't sold out that dinner, I don't know, I'd still be paying it off. <laughs> <laughs> and we were covered in Time Magazine and we got, because I had been working at Eyewitness News, I had access to the captains of industry. They bought tables. It was a time when you had to help women, feminism. And, it, and the dinner was so much fun, it would sell out every year. And then we had the money to do the research and we got people interested. I started the day in Washington, National Girls and Women in Sport Day, which we, we celebrated last week. Last week, right. And at the same time, I'm working in the Senate. So I have focus on Title IX. And, but it took us year, me years to get anybody else to step up and be president because they were afraid of it. And then I talked, the turning point was when Eva Auchincloss left as CEO and I got Donna Lopiano to leave um, UT, University of Texas, to come mm -hmm. be our uh, executive director. And she really elevated us. We moved from the plaza to the Waldorf Astoria. And then Billie Jean came back, I think, to the foundation maybe 10 years ago and has been very active. <laughs> it's crazy how many things you've, you, you, like I mentioned the things that you've touched, but it's, it's just crazy. You know, I like the special Olympics and I mean, Donna, my gosh, I mean, you have, you have done so much. It's just crazy. And I hope the listeners appreciate all of the hard work and dedication that you have put in that has resulted in like concrete change. It's been a privilege. I've met incredible people. And I think it goes back to being in that pool with people that embrace a dream and give everything to it. And that's why I, I hope everybody has, would have the opportunities we had to work with great coaches and great teammates that, you know, embrace a dream and go for it and have the support system around them. That's, that's been a lifetime gift. And by the way, I still swim. I, I don't know if you do, but I, I swim almost every day. Uh, I, I swim provided my shoulders don't hurt. I've got the, the age old swimmer problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to ask you about a, a, couple, a couple of more things before we wrap this up. And this is something I didn't, didn't realize um, is that you were involved in the 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup. Oh my, Donna, this is, uh, once again, you find yourself at the epicenter of of monumental shifts in the perception of women in sports. That was a gift because ABC decided at, at my age, at age 50, to not renew my contract, which was devastating. Mm. And um, actually right before that, Alan Rothenberg came to me. I had worked on organizing the 84 Olympics, which we haven't talked about, but that mm -hmm. was a gift too. And uh, 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 Peter Ubroth had put together amazing people. And so Alan came to me and he said, um, you got to chair this event. And I had two little kids and I was 
really fighting to get ABC to keep me. And I turned him down. And he said, but you were on the board of the men's world cup. And, you know, I'd helped him with Washington and funding and some stuff they needed. This is perfect for you. And so they hired somebody else. Didn't work out, got on a plane and came back. He said, Donna, you got to do this. <laughs> and I said, okay, Alan, he said, it'll only be a few days a week. I said, Alan, <laughs> <come> on. <laughs> nobody believes in this event. You know, if it fails, it's going to be me. If it's successful, you know, there's a lot of people <laughs> that are at Toronto success, but the truth is we had a great team. Marla Bensing, yeah. Alan, myself, um, just, and, and to the player, I, you, you, they were a marketing dream. You know, we got them in all the commercials. The deal was trying to get, um, coverage, television coverage. So mm -hmm. I went to Ebersol at NBC. He said, well, I'm doing this thing, a mixture of wrestling and football. And I thought, oh, he doesn't get it. He never got women's sports. Uh, what a mistake. Um, then I went to CBS um, and they said, well, our schedule's full. And then ESPN said, well, we might give you a time by. Uh, but we got him. We got him to yeah. cover. And then at the end, it was so much fun because um, Howie Katz had come back to ABC and you know, in the middle of me being gone uh, from ABC, I'm bringing him this great event. And at the end, when Rune Arledge uh, was still at, at News, who'd been my, uh, uh, you know, head of sports and created Monday Night Football and everything, um, said, we're going to the network and we're going to we're going to go. We're going to preempt news during the Women's World Cup final at the at, you know, Rose Bowl full on full Good. sold out. He said, wow. We put, Kat said, we put lightning in the bottle. And I go, we, you put lightning in the bottle. We gave you a gift. But it was so much fun because we sold out at Giant Stadium, the first event. Even George Steinbrenner didn't believe it. He said, it, how, Donna, how did this happen? It's close to 100,000 people, the capacity of the Rose Bowl, right? It's uh, huge. Well, even Larry King called me and said, Donna, I'll put you on if you get me tickets. <laughs> said, you got a deal. <laughs> God bless him. He's gone. Yeah. But um, no, it was so much fun. It was really a dream come true. And at a point in my life when I was feeling, you know, it's hard to let go of a whole life at a network when you've grown up with people and you've covered so many Olympics and mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden you're obsolete. It was hard to take, but um, I just poured my energies into the Women's World Cup and I met people. I went, I went journalist to journalist. You got to cover it. Even Christine Brennan didn't believe in it. Now she loves it because I said, you got to come to a, a match and meet these players. You're going right. to love them. Well, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that you had a great team, the people organizing. But, and you also mentioned the Team USA. Was, I mean, they were fantastic. And, oh. and for those that don't remember or, or weren't alive or... Um, like they ended up winning. It was like a Cinderella story, Team USA. And the indelible image of Brandy Chastain ripping off her jersey and celebrating in front of the goal on her knees and her team. You know, it's, it's the beginning of women's soccer in the US. I know, I mean, I thought it was fun. I did go to the um, final in France you know, when they sold out and um, uh, Rapino and her team did mm -hmm. so well. And, you know, the, the new journalist didn't even mention 99. And I thought it all started there. 
You know, we blew every record, everybody's concept. I mean, even FIFA um, with Seb Blatter, they took they took a, a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even believe it that what we did. And um, and you think about it, France didn't even have a team then. Germany wow. was just beginning to accept women's football. Uh, I went to the UEFA, UEFA Women's Finals in um, in Hungary, and they had a sold out crowd. So it just it just grew around the world. Yeah. And and now these you know these federations understand that it's business. So you know it, I, I, it should be more important. Yeah, it's more important than business, but. But it's uh, it was really exciting. It, it was such a fun. But but you provided the opportunity for that magic to happen, and that's what we love about sports, right? Is yeah. that and that's all athletes want is they they want to be given that opportunity to make their own magic happen and to make those few and far between moments that change the world. Yeah, it's it's true. We we're very lucky that we've had that that journey. And that's why I always try to share it because it's, uh, it's life-changing. Mm-hmm. I, I want, I want to ask you a little bit about the ABC. Um, and you mentioned that, that, uh, you were let go from ABC, but, uh, I believe the next year you filed a lawsuit. Um, so the tools that you put in place in order for you, for athletes to be able to fight for their, their rights, you were, you were in a way using for yourself. I had athletes come to me and say, uh, you got to do this. Mm. And the women come to me and say, they're using you as a, an example. And I don't know if that's true there or whatever. It's big business. Uh, it was the hardest thing I ever did. And um, the interesting thing is when we were going through the process of deposition, Rune Arledge said, have him call me. Mm. And he was had cancer. I mean, I can't talk about everything, but it's in you know public. He had cancer. We went to his apartment and he came out in a walker and sat down Mm. and basically said, I don't understand why she's not here anymore. So, um, and he looked at me and says, this must be really tough. I said, he said, because all you care about is, you know, this, this, uh, this business and, and your voice in it. And I said, you're right, Rune. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And, uh, Anyway, um, we all have our time. I think it wasn't so much that they let me go. It was how they let me go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had also played a role in management. I wasn't just on air. You know, I, I helped bring Robin Roberts to ABC. I put more, helped put more women on the air covering the 84 Olympics than ever before. Mm-hmm. Diane and I had, and a lot of, a lot of women that wouldn't have, they wouldn't have known how to find them and, um, put them through, uh, uh, coaching. So when they were, were on air, they knew how to handle the camera and all the things you have to learn technically that are invisible, but are really important. Right. Uh, it was hard, but the truth is that ABC, because I handled it the way I did asked to settle it. And they sent under one condition. And I said, what? Because after I sued, everybody wanted interviews. And I said, no, I'm not doing interviews. This is family. This is me and them. And, um, they said under one condition. And I said, what's that? They said, you come back. So they hired me back. <laughs> there we go. They hired me back and I was there for, you know, a few more years and then I moved on. Well, one thing is for sure is that you are a fighter and you have for so many years fought, um, not only for yourself, but for the athletes. Um, 
And um, I know that you are starting on a new adventure with the board of directors for the USOPC. There's a lot of big and important and great work uh, to do there. That's right. Maybe this is my last chapter, but I want to make it really important. And, uh, you know, we've been going through the onboarding process and I'm learning so much about what they've done and since uh, the crisis. And uh, I think with the combination of the focus of the commission, the Senate commission, and with uh, the new people that are on board and, and a lot of the veterans that are still around, I think we can uh, create, you know, uh, create the tools we need to really um, figure this complicated sport landscape out in the U.S. Because we do, it is complicated. I mean, do you think about it? Grammar school, why? Club program, college program, gold program, Olympics, maybe professional opportunities. It's complicated. It, it is complicated, but what you're trying to accomplish is not quite as complicated. Let me give you an example. I'm married to a woman who was a Division One athlete who were who was afforded the opportunities that you were not afforded. My daughter is a Division One athlete right now, and. It, and I think it's so important that they, they know of people like you. And there's a lot of people like you, but you are really the, in the epicenter of everything. And I, I want them just to appreciate what you have done. Well, thank you. You know, we all, my biggest inspire, inspiration came from Una Shriver. Mm. You know, here she was, she lost three brothers to violence and she's giving back to, to the Special Olympics, a whole world of people that had no voice and no power, and she changed the world. And, she, mm. and you know, every time I get frustrated, I think of her. I mean, her resilience, her creativity. I mean, we get through with a, you know, a great event, and she'd say, okay, what went wrong? We got to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and she used her frustration and anger to um, enhance the roles and empower people um, and her own family in ways that uh, left such a big impression on me. And she adopted me, basically. I was, you know, basically part of her world. Well, Donna, you've been part of changing the world. And um, you've made an indelible impact on sports, on me, countless athletes, females and males. And thank you for continuing your work. And of course, thank you for sharing your amazing life story with us today. Thank you. As I have all season, I'll leave you with some quotes to underscore themes of today's episode. Sports has the power to change the world, said Nelson Mandela. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little else does. It speaks to youth in a language they understand. Sport can create hope where there was only despair. A quote from tennis legend Venus Williams. Sports are a great place to show that equality can happen. And this pithy thought from Billie Jean King. Champions keep playing until they get it right. I'll wrap up with the words of Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman from the 2021 presidential inauguration. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace and that the norms and notions of what just is isn't always justice. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining Donna and I for this in-depth conversation about the history of women in sports. It's hard for me to believe, but this is the final episode of season one. 
and I'll be taking a few weeks off to do some postgraduate studies. I can't thank you enough for all of your support, and I look forward to sharing more episodes with you later this spring. This has been Sports Life Balance. Until next time.